Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, Google, play When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Okay, When Diplomacy Fails podcast. I'll pick up where you left off. Yeah, buddy. And we're back. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, PhD pals, all to When Diplomacy Fails. This is the 30 Years War series, and you're listening to the first episode. Of course, we've been hammering away at the 30 Years War for a few months now, but mostly looking at 17th century warfare. And now we're ready to get into the meat and bones of this narrative. So if you want some information on how warfare was done in the 17th century check those previous 15 episodes out. But if you're just here for the story, then oh boy, do I have a story for you. Ever since arriving in the lands of the Aztec Empire, Hernando Cortes had been inundated with great packages of gold, silver, and other priceless artifacts. The gifts were meant to pay the price of turning away the Spanish swords from the heart of the Aztec homeland, yet it had the opposite effect. In Cortes's mind, such prizes were the mute but eloquent testimony that there must be more. The further Cortes ventured inland, the more supplicant vassals he found willing to fight the Aztecs for him and his masters back home in Europe. Whether these native vassals understood who these invaders were, or why they arrived at all, depended on which tribe or village one asked. Yet everywhere Cortes went, the news seemed to be the same, gifts and riches beyond his wildest dreams. Since the Aztec Emperor Montezuma aimed at persuading the Spaniards against venturing any further by presenting the relentless Cortes with an offer of a bribe to leave the country, 50 loads of gold for Cortes, 5 loads for each captain and 1 for each soldier, and a promise to give the King of Spain an annual tribute. 
With modern currency exchanges, it is possible to roughly value this bribe as high as over $1 billion, though, of course, modern currency exchanges are difficult to fully and accurately quantify. If Cortes was tempted to leave with this bribe then and there, he did not show it. He likely appreciated that the longer he stayed, the more he could stand to earn. Eventually reaching Tenochtitlan, Montezuma's capital upon which Mexico City is built, Cortes experienced the Aztec Emperor's hospitality firsthand. Although Montezuma brushed off Cortes's attempts to evangelize, the Spaniard did receive many curious pieces of works of gold, silver, feathers, and more than 5,000 very fine dresses of cotton, as well as certain pieces of gold and 10 loads of fine stuffs which Montezuma divided between Cortes and his captains, and to every soldier he gave two collars of gold, each worth 10 crowns and two loads of mantles. This according to the historian John Tate Lanning. Upon sending out envoys to meet further vassals of the Aztecs, these returned to Cortes to inform him of the immense wealth of the surrounding gold mines, which encouraged Cortes to press Montezuma for further concessions. By the middle of the year 1520, the emperor of the fearsome Aztecs had even sold off his father's jewels in a bid to buy the friendship of this mysterious power called Spain. Not even this massive collective effort and prize-grabbing would prove enough to satiate Cortez's desires, but Montezuma had not yet exhausted his reserves. Bernal Diaz del Castillo, one of Cortez's subordinates, noted how the Aztec emperor made one last incomprehensibly vast gift of hulking gold statues. So large were these gifts that del Castillo and his men were for the space of three days constantly employed in taking it to pieces from the various manners in which it was worked up. In this we were also assisted by the royal goldsmiths. When the pieces of gold had been separated into more manageable cargo, the articles of gold were formed in three heaps, weighing upwards of 600,000 crowns, exclusive of the various other valuables, the gold in plates and bars, and the metal in its rough state from the mines. Del Castillo then noted how the local goldsmiths melted down the metal which was in the heaps and ran it into bars the breadth of three fingers, now literally weighed down with more gold than they had ever seen in their entire collective lives. Cortes and his party received yet another present from Montezuma, which was so rich that it was worthy of admiration, exclusive of the jewels and pearls, the beautiful embroideries of pearls and feathers, and the panaches and plumage, a recital whereof would be endless. Finally, as a cherry on top of this golden cake, Cortes acquired the additional prize he had been searching for. Although it did not shine like a gold bar, it was just as valuable. After exacting a concession of several thousand acres of land for his private estate, Cortes cloaked his sequestrations in a vague legality by having Montezuma and the chief Aztec lords swear an oath of allegiance to his Catholic Majesty Charles V, the King of Spain, the Duke of Burgundy, and the Holy Roman Emperor, the world's most powerful ruling potentate in 1520, had, by the actions of Hernando Cortes, just added a new title to his already long list, 
Charles V of the House of Habsburg was now master of the Aztecs and lord of the New World. Charles V, this king, emperor, duke, lord and master, was born in the city of Ghent in 1500, an apparently perfect point from which to mark his incredible rise. Charles was the deliberate product of some very carefully planned marriages. It was to Charles that the inheritances of several dynasties would fall. The sprawling Duchy of Burgundy from the Valois Dukes that had ruled there, King of Spain from the Castilian House and King of the Romans from his native House of Habsburg. Charles was thus the embodiment, or perhaps more accurately the culmination, of several centuries of Habsburg growth and ambition. Never before and never again would a man of that house possess and claim to rule over so much. In the words of Andrew Wheatcroft, By his presence and by the immense prestige that attached both to his imperial title and to the ideology of power which was fashioned around him, Charles could be expected to utilise this great consolidation of power into his hands to further benefit the Habsburg family like never before. If he could succeed in holding his domains together, the sky was the limit, for he was certainly not bound by the seas so long as Hernando Cortes sent such priceless hauls of gold across the Atlantic. Little wonder that Charles was likened to Augustus. Speaking of his rights, titles and responsibilities in 1521, Charles V himself said that Ye know that I am born of the most Christian emperors of the noble German nation, of the Catholic kings of Spain, the Archdukes of Austria, the Dukes of Burgundy, who were all, to the death, true sons of the Roman Church, defenders of the Catholic faith, all the sacred customs, decrees and usages of its worship, who have bequeathed all this to me as my heritage, and according to whose example I have hitherto lived. The religious undertones of this address were both intentional and incredibly relevant in 1521, for Charles was not merely addressing his subjects, he was addressing above all the recent rift caused by the incendiary teachings of Martin Luther. That Charles would be confronted by such a religious crisis so early in his reign anticipated that, far from universally successful and wholly united against the common foe, in this case the Turks, Charles's domains would be drawn instead to wage wars against the French, the Turk, and the very princes within the empire over whom he supposedly ruled. Look how much depends on your person, wrote one prominent cardinal in Charles's day, and how you would leave your kingdoms if, for our sins, some disaster should befall you. Yet Charles was immensely fortunate to reap the fruits of several Habsburg offspring spread out across the continent that could carry out a great number of the tasks of rule in his name, including his own siblings. The plain fact that Charles could not be in several places at once spoke for the need to appoint regents and viceroys in different portions of his sprawling domains, most notably in Burgundy and Austria, while Charles himself spent most of his time in Madrid. In addition, Charles's four sisters, while they did not rule in his name, they married and formed separate branches of the Habsburg dynasty in their own right. Isabella was wedded to the King of Denmark, Mary was betrothed to the heir of the thrones of Hungary and Bohemia, and Catherine married the King of Portugal. In an effort to further parry the French threat, 
His elder sister Eleanor was wedded to King Francis I of France. In time, Mary would come to rule as regent over the Netherlands, and Charles's brother Ferdinand would rule in his name in Vienna, eventually providing the progeny that would constitute the Austrian branch of the Habsburg line, while Charles's son, Philip, would constitute the Spanish branch. All told, it was a stunning display of familial ambition, and it demonstrated that, far from content to rest on his considerable laurels, Charles aimed at propelling the Habsburg family to greater heights than ever before. Considering how incredibly influential and extensive the reach of the Habsburg family was by the early 16th century, one would be justified in asking how exactly such a family managed to dominate a continent. For the sake of tying all the disparate threads of the Thirty Years' War together, we must take some time to examine the history of this family and how it reached the height of its powers right at the point when Europe was undergoing profound change and when threats from the East seemed terrifyingly real. It's a story as much about the curious nature of the Holy Roman Empire as it is about the similarly mysterious family that came to dominate it. It is a story which begins, surprisingly, not in Germany per se, but in the town of Brugge in Switzerland. Before we tell that story though, guys, I wanted first and foremost to thank you for joining me here today. My name is Zach Twomley, in case you didn't know, and this is When Diplomacy Fails, we're looking at the 30 Years' War. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, then it's really great to have you. But if you've been listening to us for quite some time now, then I'm sure you're aware that this podcast isn't all that we provide. You see, while every two weeks a new episode of this show comes out, if you were to head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below, you'll be able to access a really exciting other story. This one tackling the history of Poland, specifically Poland in the 18th century. This series is called Poland is Not Yet Lost, and just as we're starting the proper narrative series of the Thirty Years' War right now, next week we'll be taking up the story of Poland in the early 1700s, after having released lots of background episodes examining how the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth works, how its nobility works, what they were after, and how exactly Poland and Lithuania came to be joined together in the first place. It's a really fascinating story, and I really can't wait to bring it to you all. So if you feel like you can part with $5 a month, then that series could be yours. I should, of course, mention that in this month of January, we already sing an episode of the Thirty Years' War every week, but normally it's going to be bi-weekly. So if every other week you would like to access Poland is Not Yet Lost, make sure to head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks again, guys, and thanks so much for supporting this show in any way that you do, whether that be liking this page on social media or following us on Twitter at WDF Podcast. It's all super appreciated, and I can't wait to see what we do with When Diplomacy Fails in 2020. Now though, let's get back to this story. The Habsburg family came from relatively humble beginnings. They were a Swiss noble family hailing from Habsburg Castle. The Habsburg dynasty bided its time, it manoeuvred its enemies and acquired a rapidly growing portfolio of disparate estates and territories. 
The true ascension of the Habsburgs to a position of European predominance reads like a succession of well-planned and opportunistically sought marriages with the great houses of Europe. Frederick III arranged a marriage between his son Maximilian and Mary of Burgundy in 1477, tying the massive region of Burgundy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market including its successor states in the Netherlands, to the Habsburg family. The Valois Dukes of Burgundy, a branch of the French royal house, had managed to bring together and rule this apparently ramshackle polity, with its contrasting economic and social structures, its several different languages, and with its local privileges defended by long-established provincial estates and by solemnly sworn princely charters in the words of the historian H.G. Konigsberger. A century later, this marriage would greatly shape the development of Europe, as these same Dutch possessions in the Netherlands declared themselves a sovereign state in 1581, in a revolt against the authority of the King of Spain, Philip II. Philip II being the great-grandson of Maximilian. Elsewhere, too, the marriages of the Habsburgs had produced fruit. Notwithstanding how impressive Charles V was, his grandfather, Maximilian of Habsburg, born in 1459, proved to be arguably the most expansionist and ambitious leader of his house in living memory. He benefited immensely from the aforementioned marriage between himself and Mary of Burgundy, and their son, Philip, would go on to marry Joanna of Castile, often saddled with the unfortunate epithet, Joanna the Mad. Notwithstanding her sanity, Joanna managed to provide Philip with a son, Charles, who would in time be our Charles, Charles V, of so many domains. As Philip married Joanna, so too did Juan marry Margaret of Austria, solidifying still further the Habsburg investment in the Spanish possessions. So it was that when the remaining Spanish heirs died in quick succession by 1500, 
The two half-Hausberg couples, Philip and Joanna, Margaret and Juan, seemed well-positioned to place a Hausberg candidate on that prestigious throne. In 1500 and 1503, Charles and Ferdinand, respectively, were born, signifying that Maximilian's initial positivity had been correct. A Habsburg would sit on the Spanish throne. At the same time as the dual marriage Spanish strategy was undertaken, the indefatigable Maximilian plotted also to wed his grandson Ferdinand and his granddaughter Mary to the sister of the King of Hungary and the King of Hungary, respectively. The kings of Hungary were also kings of Bohemia, and they possessed sprawling domains which stretched into the Balkans. In the interests of his house, Maximilian devised an immensely complex set of marital contracts, whereby extended members of the newly created branches of the Habsburg family would, in the time of their maturity, be pledged to wed designated partners. In addition, Maximilian even went so far as to adopt the sole heir and son of the King of Hungary as his own son. What was even more incredible, he then sought to get this adopted son, Louis of Bohemia, accepted as King of the Romans. Yet even Maximilian could not have imagined what was about to occur. In 1519, upon the death of the old emperor, the titles passed, not to any adopted son, but to his grandson, Charles, who had also been confirmed as King of Spain and Duke of Burgundy. Thanks to the incredible expansion of the Spanish crown in the New World, and the successes and prestige which it would soon enjoy in that sphere, the Spanish crown now meant entitlement to a glittering overseas empire as well. In the space of a few years then, Charles V of the House of Habsburg became the most powerful ruler on the continent, on a scale not seen since the days of the Roman emperors of yore. In the years that followed, Maximilian's ghost continued to stalk the proceedings. The adopted Louis had an unfortunate fate, though. He drowned in a river while attempting to flee the disastrous Battle of the Mohach in 1526, which left Hungary and Bohemia without any monarch. Fortunately for the Habsburg family, the sister of the late Hungarian king had married Ferdinand, Ferdinand being the brother of Charles V, while Charles V's own sister Mary had also married into the Hungarian royal family, thus enabling the Habsburgs to stake their own claim on these extensive Hungarian lands, while the Ottoman Empire capitalised upon their victory with an occupation of Budapest from the 1540s. Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Duke of Burgundy, and now master of one of the most formidable medieval kingdoms in Europe, that being Hungary, Charles V seemed destined to leave a lasting legacy not merely in the pantheon of the Habsburg family, but in the very fabric of the European continent. Ruling during such a transformative period in the history of his dynasty, Charles V presided over an era of great change, as the Reformation redefined the contract between emperor and subject. The princely electors, once content to be placated with bribes or promises of another beneficial sort, could now stand on a different religious spectrum to their emperor altogether. The religious and political upheavals which followed were punctuated by the ongoing war with the Ottomans, which continued into the 1540s. All the while, the emperor was forced to maintain his attention on France, which repeatedly sought to undermine the Habsburg position in Italy and along the Rhine. To Charles's great fortune, imperial Spanish forces achieved a crushing victory over the French enemy, which included the capture of the King of France at the Battle of Pavia 
1525. But such complete successes were rare. King Francis resumed the war and would not make peace until both sides had exhausted their resources several years later. At the same time, Charles's victories in North Italy enabled him to expand Habsburg influence there, even while the sack of Rome in 1527 damaged his reputation somewhat, and predictably enough, it mightily angered the papacy. Victories against France were important, but it was while juggling his dynasty's security concerns in the East and constitutional concerns within the HRE that Charles V was ultimately defeated. Forced to sign a series of religious concessions which recognised the existence of another religious creed in the empire, Charles sacrificed the unity of his domains and effectively prevented his subjects from uniting against the common enemy of either France or the Turk. The most notable meeting in this was the Augsburg Diet in 1530, which seemed to provide for a measure of clarity and unity among the Lutheran princes of the empire, those Protestant princes who had chosen to adopt Martin Luther's creed. Yet not even his critics could deny that Charles had any choice. The Holy Roman Empire seemed to be fragmenting before their very eyes, even as religious warfare also began to bubble over in France, with results that would in time effectively paralyse that country for the remainder of the 16th century. In the midst of such turmoil did Charles agree to the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, a landmark religious and political agreement which spoke to the permanence of the Protestant Lutherans in the Empire, and seemed to provide a calming elixir to the ruinous religious strife which had to that point run rampant. Before we go any further, it is worth asking something of a loaded question. What exactly was the Holy Roman Empire? At its core, the Empire, and the Emperor which led it, sourced its legitimacy and authority from medieval agreements and traditions, established in the mists of historical account. The first Emperor, Charlemagne, seems to have been as French as he was German, in that he was King of the Franks, before redefining his relationship with power and the papacy on Christmas Day, 800 AD, when he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor of the German nation. By then, his domains contained the nucleus of what we would recognise as France, Germany, the Netherlands, North Italy, and still more lands, but Charlemagne was not finished. It is a mark of the curious legacy which Charlemagne left Europe and the world that both France and Germany can claim Charlemagne as their own. Certainly it is likely that the Emperor spoke a dialect of Old High German, but his status as King of the Franks, the stately ancestor of France, complicates matters. In a sense, it seems that Charlemagne himself did us a favour with his act of clarification on Christmas Day 800. He was neither a mere king nor a prince, nor an emperor in a Byzantine sense. He was the emperor, the successor to Rome, and he had resurrected the Rome of ancient history by fusing it to the papacy. In the process, Charlemagne also fused together his physical, dynastic authority as king of the most powerful entity in the West, with the spiritual authority that only the descendant of St. Peter could endow. His polity was holy because of the papacy's blessing, it was Roman because of his claims to have succeeded that famous empire, and of course it was an empire in its own right, because Charlemagne had cleaved for himself 
a realm on a scale never before seen or imagined possible by his contemporaries. Symbolism played a key role in the ceremonials which took place in Rome. Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Emperor while the latter was wrapped in a tunic and cloak in the style of ancient Rome. Charlemagne's imposing figure rose once crowned to tower over the altar of St. Peter's, just as he would have towered over the rest of the congregation. With this crowning, the King of the Franks became Holy Roman Emperor, but among his contemporaries and among historians since, it was possible to debate what this actually meant. Did it mean that Charlemagne had reached the peak of his powers, the height of his powers? For some theologians, it was as simple as seeing Charlemagne as the Christian emperor ruling a Christian empire. To others, Charlemagne's power and majesty was such as to hearken back to the days of ancient Rome, and the eternal cities playing host to this event was certainly no accident. Other admirers believed that because of his incredible victories and earthly achievements, Charlemagne had transcended the title of king and had become something else entirely. Pope Leo III, for his part, hoped that with this crowning, Charlemagne would become not merely emperor, but also protector, the physical and military force for Christendom and the papacy, while the Pope himself would be its spiritual leader. An awkward compromise which was soon to result in grief. Charlemagne was a figure of profound importance for European history and development, but like all mortals, he had to die eventually. Upon his death in 814, his lands were divided and settled between his sons, and the fragmenting of his life's work soon began in earnest. Notwithstanding the fates of his descendants, what is sometimes obscured within the incredible story of Charlemagne is the fact that this King of the Franks and first Emperor of the West since the Romans was also a scion of the Carolingian house. Carolingian would be the name given to the empire Charlemagne would leave behind, as his successors grappled with the power vacuum left by his absence. The Carolingian dynasty remained, largely because of the person and mythos of Charlemagne, prestigious and majestic, even as it waned. The monopoly of this family on the title of Holy Roman Emperor was all but broken within a century of Charlemagne's death, but the story then became one not of what the Holy Roman Empire represented, but of who wore the imperial crown and who held those all-important titles which conferred so much power. The medieval Holy Roman Empire was a story of struggles between competing families who vied for influence and legitimacy as all sought that elusive prize. It was a struggle which began with one dynasty, the Carolingian, and ended with another, the Habsburg, and this latter struggle formed but one element of the conflict, which developed into the Thirty Years' War. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of the Thirty Years' War History, friends. Please join me in the next episode as I unwrap something special, the religious dislocation of Europe after the Reformation and the HRE's desperate efforts to resolve the struggle in its dynasty's favour. If that sounds good to you, then I hope to see you next week, because, as you may or may not be aware, for the month of January 2020 only, the 30 Years War series will be returning to a weekly schedule, simply because I feel like it's a nice way to welcome everyone back into the fold, and bring in new listeners as well. Other than that, if you want to hear a little bit more news, I should let you know that I'm changing up the structure of these episodes a little bit. 
The fact that I'm still talking to you now when I've said that the episode is over should show you that we are changing things around. And the way that this will look is that the episodes in the future will pretty much start straight away. And if you want to hear any news about myself or any news about the podcast in general, then you should stick around to the end. The ads for Patreon or sponsorship or whatever else I get to talk about, in the free feed at least, will be running in the middle of the episode. And I do this so that new listeners aren't bombarded with information or news or sponsorship ads or anything like that, when all they really want to do is see whether or not When Diplomacy Fails is for them. Hopefully this will result in a good turnaround, but if you don't stick around till the end, you won't really notice all that much. And if you're signed up on Patreon at the $2 level, you won't notice the ad in the middle either. In any case, if you are listening to this podcast as part of your New Year's resolution to listen to more history, then that's great. But if you're listening to this as a long-term listener, and you're excited to see what the future holds for when diplomacy fails, then I want to say thanks very much for spending half an hour with me today. And I hope to see you next week as we resume this wonderful, exciting, and really underrated story. Thanks again for joining me, guys. And I hope to see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.